Okay, so it looks like it's at uh, 12 o'clock. So welcome everyone uh, to this class from the Sea to Sinai, Tests of the Wilderness. Uh, this class explores the questions, why did the Israelites complain so bitterly when they were in the wilderness? Did they doubt God? If God could split a sea, then why did he fail to provide their basic commodities like water and food? Was it all part of God's plan? Uh, Rabbi um, uh, Silber, would you like to introduce Yes, so I just wanted to uh, introduce Dr. Sam Rappaport, who will say a few words about, uh, about today's program, about the uh, Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture in general. I just wanted to say that the Memorial Lecture, the Rappaport Lecture, is a really a, a real anchor at Trisha. It's been out, this is the 21st lecture that we've had, and it takes place typically right around Pesach, before Pesach time. So in addition to the lecture itself, it also gives us an opportunity to prepare for Pesach, to think about Pesach, what it's about, how it continues to speak to us uh, each year. And this year in particular, it's been a, a difficult year for all of us and uh, looking forward to Pesach and different perspectives on Pesach. So I will now uh, turn it over to Dr. Rappaport, Sam Rappaport, to uh, introduce our speaker. And thank you all. Good afternoon. My name is Sam Rappaport. My wife, Sandra Rappaport, my sister, Nancy Goldstein, and our entire family welcome you to the 21st annual Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture. This lecture series, initially dedicated to the memory of my father, David Rappaport, is now dedicated to the collective memories of our parents, my father, David Rappaport, my mother, Rose Rappaport, and Sandra's parents, Gabriel Sharon and Rebecca Sharon, Zichronam Lebracha. My family and I are very grateful to Rabbi David Silver, the visionary founder and leader of Drisha, for providing a mechanism through Drisha that memorializes our parents and that celebrates her lifelong commitment to Jewish education. Because my father's Hebrew name was Pesach David, Rabbi Silver wisely advised that his memory be honored with a Pesach-themed lecture. And so for over two decades, as Pesach approaches, the Rappaport family memorial lecturers have taught our community new points of view and provided new insights relating to the Pesach narrative. For this year's lecture, we are fortunate to hear and learn from renowned Tanakh scholar, international lecturer and author, Rabbi Alex Israel. Rabbi Alex Israel teaches Bible at Pardes Institute of, Ju of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. Rabbi Alex Israel's lecture is entitled From Sea to Sinai, Tests of the Wilderness. Thank you for joining us. Please welcome the 21st Annual Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture, Rabbi Alex Israel. Uh, good evening, everybody. Your, I don't know, good day to everybody. Here <laughs> it's good evening. Uh, I'm uh, in Koshetzion, and it's a delight to be with you. It's a delight to be, uh, even if remotely, uh, in Drisha. I want to thank uh, Rabbi David Silba, as you correctly said, with his visionary leadership. And uh, I want to thank the Rappaport family for asking me once again to give the lecture. A few years ago, we spoke about the plagues. Last year, we had a different type of plague <laughs> because I was planning on coming and I remember my, del my deliberations um, on should I cancel the, my flight? Should I not cancel my flight? And had I actually got on that flight, I don't think anybody would have been able to attend the lecture because things would have already locked down by that point. And I would have 
made a journey to New York uh, without an audience. So I'm, I'm so uh, delighted and thankful that you're offering, offering me the opportunity of tashlumim, of a sort of tikkun of sorts, to be able to give this uh, lecture, which was planned for last year. And hopefully it should be a, a sign of us coming out of a, a difficult year and uh, getting back on the road, getting back on the rails, and uh, putting, putting things back into the groove of normality. And Be'ezra Hashem, we will experience uh, this Pesach, a sense of you know, coming out of freedom and being able to uh, resume, resume a normal life, not under Mitzrayim, Mitzarim, under closure, but actually under, um, under something wider. Um, as Rabbi Silva said, we want to try and deal with some themes of Pesach. However, I'm going to slightly widen things uh, with your permission this evening. And uh, what we're going to try and do is to uh, examine what happens after we leave Egypt. You know, freedom is a, a sort of a very long process, <laughs> or maybe I should say uh, becoming, the becoming of nations. I'm thinking, uh, just today, I was I turned on the radio and I'm listening to all of the talk about the upcoming Israeli elections. And you might be aware that us in Israel have a little bit of a sort of political, we're in a bit of a political stalemate at the moment with the election system, anybody who's following the Israeli political system. And one might well ask, is this a failure of the system? Is the system? And the answer is, I think, that we're still a young country <laughs> and we're still getting it right. And we're still fine tuning things. Uh, you know, we, we, we stand on Yom Ha'atzmaut and we say Hallel and we say thank you to God for, for, so to speak, giving us independence, for taking us out of Egypt. But there's still a long road to walk through the wilderness till we become a nation. And uh, we might even say that we're still treading that road. And therefore, um, I think the day after we emerge from Egypt, uh, the night uh, for you guys, it's, uh, it's the second night of the Seder. For us, it's the first uh, day of Chol HaMoed. We start counting. We start counting seven times seven. We've just got free, but we, we realize that that's not, the end, that's not the end goal. We start counting up and we start counting to, to Har Sinai, to a new stage of realization. So when we leave Egypt, we have reached a, a true milestone. It's a landmark. We have become, we've emerged from Egypt, but there is still a lot of growing to do. There is still a, a long road ahead. And that's, that's the road that I'd like to talk about today. And I hope it will be uh, a fascinating one. I'm gonna share my screen so you can see the source sheet. Um, and let's begin with a, uh, what we're going to do, maybe I'll explain the strange uh, um, structure that we have here at the top of the sheet. And what you can see here, if you look at the first column, is the chapters from chapter 14 all the way to chapter 17. And I'm going to describe a process from Kriyat Yam, so from the crossing of the Reed Sea, and of course the Song of the Sea, the Shiratayam, through Mara, which was a story of water, then the story of the man, the story about food, water, Masao Mariva, and the War of Amalek. And you can see this forms a very lovely chiastic structure, a symmetrical structure, war, water, food, water, war, almost telling us that it's designed in that, in that uh, as a separate unit, as a unit from the sea to Sinai, 
And the question is what, what exactly is, is happening there? So I'd like to start telling that story together with you. And we're going to start with a couple of questions. And let's start at the sea, uh, which is our first uh, point of departure. The Jewish people, the Israelites have left Egypt, marched into the desert and found themselves by the sea. And uh, we have a famous question here of the Ibn Ezra. Um, sorry, one minute. Oh, I see there's a reference missing, but okay. Um, and he says, Yeshli Tumor. You know, I'll use my highlighter here. Yeshli uh, Tumor. One should have a question. We're told that the Israelites are 600,000 people in number. Why would they be scared of the Egyptian army facing them? Why shouldn't they fight? If you're not going to fight for yourself, fight for your children. Hachuva, says the Ibn Ezra. The answer is, and here you see the English, the Egyptians were the Israelites masters. And this generation had learnt from a very, very young age to buckle down, to bend to the yoke of Egypt. Their spirit was broken. They had a low esteem. They had a slave mentality. How could they stand and fight their masters? They didn't even know how to fight, etc., etc. We start off with a nation with a slave mentality. Um, and I'd say even more than a slave mentality. I'd like to share maybe a lesser known Midrash. And I should have put a heading here. But this is the Midrash, um, Midrash from, from Medrash Rabbah. And it starts with, uh, if you look in source number two here, as they leave the Yamsuf, as they leave the, the, the Reed Sea, it says, Vayasa Moshe Tisrael mi Yamsuf. And that's an unusual phrase, because why doesn't it say, Vayisa Israel mi Yamsuf, an Israel journey from Yamsuf? Why does it say, Vayasa Moshe Tisrael mi Yamsuf? Moses had them travel from Yamsuf. What, what's happening there? So look at the Midrash, which you see on your screen here. Moses caused Israel to set out from the Sea of Rees. Moses had to drag them away from there against their better judgment. Ketzad, what do you mean? When Am Yisrael uh, left Egypt, Paro chased after them with his massive army. What Mersa, what did he do? Apparently, Pharaoh's um, cavalry was decorated with all sorts of decorations, which involves all sorts of jewelry, all sorts of precious stones and semi precious stones. When God drowned them in the sea, they floated on the sea and washed up on the shore. Each morning, Israel would wake up by the Yamsuf. They'd wake up by the Red Sea and they'd go and pick up a few jewels. 
ולא היו מבקשים לזוז משם, נדעים בוא נעליב, כיוון שראה משה כך, עמד והסיים בעל כורחם. When Moshe saw this, he uh, decided that they had to leave and he had to pull them away from there. I don't know what you think of this Midrash. It's always puzzled me a little bit. First of all, I can understand the royal chariot being encrusted in jewels. But all the cavalry to be encrusted in jewels seems strange to me. I don't know if we have any historical record of armies having jewelry on their cavalry. Second of all, if of course these jewels were encrusted into the chariots and what have you, and they plunged to the bottom of the sea, why would they float? Why would they wash up on the shore? It seems strange. I think it's a metaphor. The people, the only value they could see was the jewels of Egypt. They've come out of Egypt, they have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. They not only have a slave mentality, their spirit is broken and they're, they're, they're lowly of spirit, but if they can see something of worth, it is Egyptian. They're sort of caught in that conception. Everything Egyptian is of value. And in a few minutes, we're going to see that God is going to train them to go every morning and gather something very different. They'll be gathering God's food. There's going to be a replacement strategy put in place, whereby instead of picking up the jewels of Egypt, they have to pick up the man every morning, but we'll see that in a minute. But my point is, at this point in history, Israel can't look ahead. Israel can only look back. The only valuable things that they can see are the jewels of Egypt. And even if Egypt have chased them, and even if Egypt are their enemy, have been their oppressors, yet this is what, this is their, their sort of still their mindset. In other words, you can take the Jew out of Egypt, but can you take Egypt out of the Jew as the famous uh, phrase goes? And that's the question. So let's move and let's go and follow Amistrael into the wilderness to their first station, which is in Marah. And this is where we're really going to engage in uh, our questions. So please, uh, let's look at source number two on the sheet. And let's read a story together with you. So Moshe caused Israel to journey from Yamsuf. And uh, they went out into the wilderness and they could not find any water. Now, they went three days without water. Um, that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty tough. And they come to Marah. They get to a place called Marah, which means in Hebrew, bitter. And they couldn't drink the water there because it was bitter. That was the memorable thing there. It was bitter. The people complain to Moses and they say, Manishter, what are we going to drink? He cries out to God. God shows him a tree and he, or a piece of wood and he throws it into the water. And the waters become sweet. This is a slightly non sequitur. We're having the story of the water and suddenly it uses this phrase, There, he placed for them. A statute, a chok, and mishpat, and a judgment. For sham nisahu, and there he tested them. This is a very cryptic phrase. 
Moses said, if you listen to the voice of Hashem your God, and you do that which is right in his eyes, and you listen to his commands, all of the suffering which I've put on Egypt, I will not put on you, all the illness I've put on Egypt, I will not put on you, because I am God, your healer. I think we have a lot of questions here. Why did God not provide water for his people? He takes them three days through the wilderness and there's no water. You know, what's, what's going on? Why not provide them water? Number two, um, what is this notion, strange notion of giving them water by throwing in a, a tree? I'd say even more than that, couldn't Moshe have gone on ahead and maybe thrown the tree and so when they got to the water, it would be sweet. And what is this idea? What is this line of there he gave them a statute and a judgment and there he tested them? What was the test? What was the statute? What was the judgment? What is this line about if you keep my mitzvot, then you won't get any of the illnesses of Egypt? So we're going to read this and I'd like to give you two different readings, two different readings of this particular text. One is going to be that of Rashi. And one is going to be that of the Rashbam. So let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, um, well, let's see. Sham sam mishpat. There at Marah, he gave them, what's the chok um, mishpat? So he says, miksat parshiot shel Torah, shitasku bahim. He gave them a few of the parshiot of Torah that they should um, occupy themselves with Shabbat upara uduma v'dinim. I'm going to come back to that. He gave them some mitzvot. V'shani saul la'am, and they tested the people. V'ra'ak she'orpan she'lon imluchu v'loshon yafeh, and he saw how stubborn they were that they didn't talk nicely to Moshe. They didn't say, for example, v'kaysheh lanu rachamim she'elanu ma'im nishtot ela nitlonenu. Now I wonder if you agree with Rashi. <laughs> I mean the second comment of Rashi. Did they ask nicely or did they not ask nicely? Let's go back. Here in the English it says, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? It says they went three days in the wilderness with water. You know, when you go on a teal in the Negev, you know how many they always tell you, take three liters of water, you know, all that stuff, put on a hat, have the right shoes. I want to say, put a bunch of Jews, put 400 Jews on an LL plane and don't provide them with water for 10 hours, never mind for three days, and they'll have something far more savory to say than manishte. <laughs> manishte, that's positively polite in these circumstances. I think they're wonderful. Vayilonu doesn't seem negative at all. So I'm wondering what, what's going on here. Rashi thinks that this is a story which shows that the people are stubborn. I don't know. I've got to say, I, I, I'm doubting this. So let me look at the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson. And let's see, I've got to be honest, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to opt to, to go with Rashbam. Let's take a look at Rashbam, let's see what he says. And Rashbam has a lovely, lovely, um, a lovely language here. Sham Bamara, there at Mara, Alidei Alilut Hanisayon. There at Mara, through the fabrication of a test, and Alila means sort of like a, uh, you know, it means a conspiracy, right? We've got this phrase, alilat ha-nisayon. 
God made them thirst for water and then healed the water for them. He began to demonstrate to them that if they keep the statutes and judgments he will, that he will teach, he will provide their needs. Right? In Hebrew, uh, uh, he sort of like fabricated the need for water and then healed the waters. What is the Rashbam saying here? So the Rashbam is saying something very interesting. Um, what the Rashbam is trying to say is that God didn't need to do it this way. God could have, as I said, healed the water before they got there. Or maybe he could have invented a pool of water. If he can do 10 plagues, he can invent a pool of water on day one, on day two, on day three. It's almost as if Hashem wanted to bring them to breaking point, where, by the way, I've got to say, I still think they're very polite, manish there. And then, they can you imagine the scene? You've got the whole tribe of Israel. They come over the crest of the sand dune and they see this pool of water. And they all go running to go in there and they go cup their hands or they take their cups and stop. And then the water is terrible. And they say, what are we going to do? And then Moshe says, oh, Hashem gave me an idea. He throws the water in. Interestingly, the phrase is, by Hashem eats. By or maybe even from the language of Torah. He shows them a, a, and he says, look, I've healed the waters. And do you know what? I'm going to teach you some Torah. And if you keep this Torah, God's going to keep on providing for you. That's what's happening here. In other words, Hashem is taking them through an interesting process of providing their basic fundamental foodstuffs and then teaching them Torah. Now, you might well say, what Torah does he teach them? And the answer is, we get told, and here I'll, I'll reshare my screen. Um, Rashi told us, um, I'll go back to Rashi, Shabbat para Aduma and, oops, yes, Shabbat, sorry, one minute. Shabbat para Aduma Bedinim. This is a very interesting first step uh, in Judaism. Some years ago, my Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yehuda Amital, uh, maybe you've heard his name, uh, told us a lovely story. He had been invited to a secular kibbutz to speak about Judaism. And uh, somebody put up their hand, it was obviously it was a secular kibbutz and the people who were coming to hear him were quite receptive to the idea of Judaism. And uh, a lady put up a hand with a question and she said, Rabbi, I understand that you, you know, are talking about Judaism as a totality, but I've never kept Judaism before. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? And he said, this is what you should do. Number one, do something on Shabbat. Either, I don't know, don't drive or make kiddush or have a light candle. So Shabbat. Why Shabbat, he says, because it reflects God who is the Borei Olam who created the world. And then he says, take one mitzvah you understand and take one mitzvah you don't understand. It's a lovely combination because Judaism is sometimes, how should we say it, sometimes rational, but sometimes we simply have to accept things in Judaism. And he said, start with that. That was his sort of like Hillel's on one foot, right? Do something for Shabbat. Take one, one, one action you understand and one you don't understand. And then he turned to us and he said, where did I get it from? I got it from this Rashi, he said. Shabbat, how did they start? Shabbat, para aduma, which is a chok, something you don't understand. And dinim, dinim means societal laws, which you do understand, okay? 
So this is the way that God began to teach them Torah. He started providing our basic foodstuffs, and then he also taught us Torah at the same time. Now, to my mind, this is beginning of it. I, I want to pay attention to one last phrase here, and that is what I put in red here, Visham Nisahu, okay? The notion that he provided them with a test. Visham, can you see it there? Visham Nisahu, the idea of a test. I want to talk about the test, but we'll talk about that in a minute, okay? All right, let's, I want to show you a pattern. So if you just bear with me, let's keep going through because we're going to see the next story. Chapter 16, the next story, because you're going to see a lot of parallels. Let's take a look. They're setting out from Elim, the whole Israelite community came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after their departure from the land of Egypt. There they are, grumbling again. And what do they say? We wished we died in Egypt. There at least we had meat. There at least we had bread. We're going to die of hunger. Now, again, I ask the question, is this a legitimate complaint or is this an illegitimate complaint? Look at the date. They are 15th of the second month. What's the date of Pesach? The 15th of the first month. They've been on the road a month. Their food supplies must be running exceedingly low. God hasn't really provided them with much food. How are they going to subsist? So again, would you call this grumbling? I would call this, you know, you go to the person in charge and you say, we're running out of food, sir. You know, what, what does God want from us? Let's take a look what God says. Verse four, I'm going to rain bread from the heavens. And the people will go and they'll gather it day by day. There's that test again. Uh, on, on, on the Friday, they will prepare everything in advance and they'll take a double portion every day. Do you see a pattern here? In each case, God brings them to breaking point where they're running out of their basic food commodities. And then he does a double, a, a double response. He says, oh, you need food? I'll give you your food. But I'm also expecting you to shape up your behavior. In the first case, he taught them some sort of mitzvot. In the second case, he starts teaching, teaching them about Shabbos and regulating their week. So you have one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days where you have a routine. And the seventh day is different. In fact, later on, we find al say ishmim they also restricted their, their movement on Shabbat, right? In other words, we have a situation in which each time he's providing them with food, a basic food stuff, and connecting them to some sort of practice of Torah. In the first case, it was Chok o Mishpat. Now it's Shabbat. Um, the third story is going to follow the same story. We're going to see it in a minute. The first, third story about the water. And notice how God's playing around with their food, their water. 
You know how I would describe this a little bit? If Am Yisrael had just come out of Egypt and you can even imagine like, you know, um, a new nation, the nation is born. You know, isn't that the phrase they always say? A nation is born. Then this is their infancy. And I'd say this, how does an infant develop their relationship with their mother? In this case, God is the mother, so to speak. Through nursing, through the food, right? So much of their of the initial relationship to a, a baby, to, her, to, to his or her mother, is going to be through the relationship of food, right? You, and it's through those very, very elementary functions of eating, Later on, we try and teach our children table manners in the middle. We, we, we will toilet train them. Through these basically bodily functions, we will be teaching. They will learn a sense of dependency, that they know where their food comes from. It comes from their parents. But their parents are also going to make certain behavioral demands on them. So there's a very interesting sense of Hashem becoming the patron, the paternal or maternal figure for Am Yisrael and developing the most fundamental of relationships, the relationship of a parent to a child. Uh, if you want to follow this through to the third story, right? The third story, look in source number six here on page three, um, very fascinating story. Uh, let's just take a look. And then I want to say a word about the word nis Nisayon. Um, the people in, in chapter 17, we have 15, chapter 15 is Mara. Chapter 16, <laughs> chapter 16 is going to be um, the story of the mana, the man, and chapter, uh, and then we get to chapter 17, which is a water story. What happens with the water story? Let's just take a look here and uh, see what we have. Um, if you take a look here, one minute. Okay, take a look on the screen, take a look at the story, which is in front of you. And uh, this is what we have. Um, I don't know how do you imagine when Moshe hit the rock? Who was, who was there? Was everybody there? Was everybody listening? You know, what exactly was happening there? This is what it says in the Psukim. Go and pass before the people. Take the elders of Israel and take your staff with you and go off, take a hike, go walk. And what does he say? Set out. I will be standing there before you at the rock on Horev. Strike the rock and water will issue from it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The place was called Masam Riva because the Israelites quarreled and because they tried the Lord saying, is the Lord presence among us or not? Here's what happened when Moshe gave the people water. The people are in actually in a place called Rufidim, and Moshe takes some of the elders with him, and they walk out of the camp. And they go another day's journey to where? Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, it says, the rock at Chorev. You see here, the rock at Chorev? The rock at Chorev, that's Mount Sinai. Chorev is another name, actually means the parched, the, the dry area. And what does he say? You go to Chorev, hit the rock, and the water will come out. In other words, from the perspective of the camp, what happens? Moshe leaves the camp with the elders, some of the elders, and off he goes. A few hours later, what happens? Down the wadi, the dry riverbed, suddenly there's a stream of water. 
the water comes flowing into the camp. And now everybody's so delighted and they take their cups and they take water. But you know what's going to happen the next day? Well, Amalek's going to happen the next day, but after Amalek, what's going to happen? They're going to follow that stream. And you know where the source of that water is going to be? The source of that stream, which miraculously appeared in the camp, is none other than Mount Sinai itself. The source of the stream is the source of Torah. In other words, what am I trying to say? Then in each, by the way, if you don't, uh, if you haven't, it's very interesting. If you look at source number seven, it talks about there when in, in the account in Devarim about the golden calf, it says there, I threw the dust of the, uh, of the golden calf to the Nachal, the Wadi, that came through the came from the mountain, who, which descends from the mountain, and that doesn't mean a dry wadi. It mean, in in Shemot, it tells us that they drank the water, so there was water at Har Sinai. In fact, the Rambam talks about them all going to the mikveh before Har Sinai. They all converted and what have you. It seems like, especially remember Har Sinai, they lived for an entire year. There must have been a water source at Har Sinai. So, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say to summarize this bit. I'm trying to say that Hashem is playing a sort of, that's why I called this, I put an extra title at the top called The Hunger Games. God is playing very different from the movie, The Hunger Games or the book, but this is The Hunger Games. What do I mean? Hashem makes us hungry. Hashem makes us thirsty. And at each stage, what he does is he provides us with our basic foodstuffs, almost like a parent to a child. But then he also gives us some sort of connection to Torah. In Mara, he connects us to Chok or Mishpat and says, if you keep the Torah, you won't be harmed. In, um, in the story of the man, he provides them with food and says, keep Shabbat. In the story of uh, Masao Mriva, he provides us again with water and connects us to the source of, of Torah itself. And this apparently is called the Nisayon. So I want to say a word about this idea of Nisayon. Nisayon sounds like a test, but I want to say there are two types of tests. If I give you a test, let's say I give you a test in, I don't know, American legal, uh, I don't know, tax law. Either you know the tax law or you don't know the tax law, right? If I get a history test about, uh, you know, the history of, I don't know, the kings and queens of Britain. So either I know it or I don't know it. However, there's a different type of test. Sometimes there is a testing situation. You go into a new job. And it's very, very difficult. And slowly, over the weeks and months, you learn the skills that you didn't have before because you grow through the experience. Somebody goes into the Israeli army, they go to basic training. They can run about two kilometers, three kilometers. By the time they're finished, they can march 40 kilometers. They can do at the end what they couldn't do at the beginning. This is a type of nisayon where the word nes actually means a standard, a banner. It raises you right? It raises you. It's an isayon because it is a testing situation where you end up at the end of the situation more than you were at the beginning. It doesn't test what you are. It raises you. That's a nisayon. I want to argue that that is what's happening here. God is trying to, and remember, this is the Omer. This is the period of the Omer. He's trying, one could argue that it's not only that B'nai Israel aren't ready to fight the Egyptians, but Israel aren't ready to accept the Torah. They haven't built a relationship with God. The only relation, they're still looking for the jewels of Egypt. The only relationship they have is with Pharaoh. 
and it's a negative one. Eventually, they'll build a relationship with God. What does he say? Used to be Avadim, but now you're connected to me because I took you out of Egypt. This is expressed in a lovely midrash here. If you look at the Mechilta on the bottom of page three, where it says, why didn't God bring Israel straight into the land? Why did they have to wander for 40 years? God said, If I let Am Israel go straight into Israel, all they will do is each take hold of their field, take hold of their vineyard, but they will have no relationship with Torah. Ella, what will I do? Let me take them through the wilderness for 40 years. They'll eat the man, and they will drink the water, the miraculous water. And the Torah will be absorbed into their bodies. In other words, the purpose of all of this is to give them a sense that you need to develop a connection. Like, a, again, like I said, like a child. And by eating the man, by drinking the miraculous waters that Hashem provides them, they develop a connection to Torah. Adkan hakafa alaf. Until this point, this is going to be our, this is our first approach. Um, and, but I'd like to share with you two other approaches to our topic. And uh, we might say at this, uh, at this stage that we've described an approach where this approach has suggested that Amisrael are engaging in a process, a process which is in a sense, one could argue behavioral, and they're building their initial ties to God, building they're almost like childlike ties to see Hashem as their carer, got providence, and that they are reliant on God. But I'd like to suggest two other approaches. So here's the second approach. And I got this approach from my teacher, Rav Yaakov Meidan. So let's read source number nine. I call this approach rationing and sharing. Okay, take a look. He says, but what is the chok umishpat that is referred to as being having been given at Marah? To our understanding, the word statute, chok, isn't about law at all, he says. It's meant here as a specific measurement, particularly a specific ration of food. When the waters of the well were sweetened, God established a chok, a rational measure, as to how much each water each person was entitled to draw for himself, for his family, for his cattle. If no ration were determined per person from the waters of the well, it's difficult to describe the chaos that would have ensued when 600,000 thirsty people after three days of wandering in the desert, were to grab water for themselves, their family, and their cattle. The chok, which means a ration, required mishpat, an actual rule as to the ration of each family. So chok mishpat is not to do with the laws of the Torah, Shabbos, dinim, chukim, paraduma, forget all that, he says. Go to a much more fundamental level. Chok means rationing. It means an allotment. It means a portion, and it needs to be associated with strict rules. You know, we all, we all know the idea, and by the way, this may be specifically for a slave nation, okay? We've all heard the stories about, let's say, 
uh, day centers for Holocaust survivors, where the Holocaust survivor, you know, there's a, a basket of bread, and each Holocaust survivor walks out with a piece of bread in their pocket. And you know, you say to them, why? And they say, well, because when somebody offers you bread, you don't, you don't turn it down. You make sure you've got it. Because when you've not had, you want to have. The bedlam that can ensue when a whole nation of slaves find that they have water, they have resources, could be enormous. And it needs to be controlled. Now, how does he develop this? And here I've given you a couple of sources um, where you can see this. If you take a look in Bereshit, this is in the stories of, uh, of, of Yosef, it says, He didn't buy the, the, the lands of the Kohanim. There is a law from, from Paro that what? They eat their ration. So Paro would give the priests of Egypt each their allotment. of. They'd give them their, their standard allotment. Or if we go closer in the stories of the Bnei Yisrael. Do you remember that Bnei Yisrael had a certain quota, a quota of bricks? They had to provide a certain number of bricks per day. What does Pharaoh say to them? Madua chokchem. Why didn't you have your quota, your chok, your chok, your quota to make enough bricks? And later on, we also see that all of the trumot, all of the donations of Bnei Yisrael, the trumot, are olam. They are an eternal allotment. So we see that this word chok can really mean an allotment. Now, this is true about the water, but it's also true about the omer, the rationing of the, of the man. Look at the man, source 11 here, where you see that everybody has a very specific amount that they're allowed to take, right? This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone scatter as much as they need to eat. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. So they have a fixed amount. And it says the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. So some took a big amount, some took a little amount, when they, but they measured it by the omer. In other words, can you imagine? Everybody's coming in from the fields. They're bringing in their man. And there's an, a, I don't know, a, somebody standing there with an omer measure. And he says, I don't care how much you have taken. Measure it by the Omer. You can take an Omer, no more, no less. And one who gathered much did not have too much, and one who gathered little did not have too little. In other words, somebody who gathered too little, they fill them up. And somebody who gathered too much, <laughs> they'd say, sorry, give some back. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. It's about having as much as you need, not as much as you want. Everything is rationed. If you have a camp of 600,000 people, you need to ration the water, you need to ration the man. Every morning, everybody gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Now, what is this showing us? What I think this is saying to us is something really interesting. Before I described a process in my first approach, that what God was doing was he was sort of manufacturing a sense of dependency on God, a sense of bitachon, a sense of dependency. But here I'm saying something much more, uh, if you want, secular. What I'm saying is that in becoming a people, what do we say? Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah. Before you can have Torah, you need Derech Eretz. What does Derech Eretz mean? The way of the world. You need order. You need society. If we're a rabble of slaves, we can't stand at Harsina and get the Torah. First, we need to be a people. And you know something, it's very interesting, where there is law and where there is order, people don't try and get ahead. 
I find this in terms of, I came from England, right? England is a very, you know, people stand in line in England. They get very upset if you don't stand in line. It's like that in America as well. But then I came to Israel. Do I need to finish the sentence, right? Now, one of the problems when everybody gets ahead is that people get very anxious because they might want to stand in line, but somebody's really cutting them off and getting ahead. If everybody keeps the law, then you can rely on other people. If everybody's breaking the law, right? Then you can't rely on anyone. And then you start trying to only take for yourself. What happens if what God is actually trying to do here, the system putting in place with the hock, with the rationing, with the quota, is actually not building even a relationship with God. It's building a relationship between the people. It's turning us into a people. As a slave nation, we can't, don't rely on one another. And we, it's difficult for us. But now what's God doing? God is actually building. A, before we get to Harsinai, we have to be a nation. You can only give a Torah to a people, not to a, you know, sort of wild collection of individuals. And before we get to Harsina, we have to learn to rely on ourselves. We have to rely on each other. And that's the second approach. The third approach. And we're going to do this quickly. But the third approach is really fascinating. If you look at this uh, and I would I will like to mention if I mentioned that the previous approach I heard originally from Rav Yaakov Medan. This I heard originally from uh, Abiyah Kohen, Rav Abiyah Kohen, um, a neighbor of mine, another neighbor of mine from Alon Shemut. Um, if you look at this story, you will notice some wonderful parallels between this story of wandering through the wilderness and the plagues in Egypt. Let's take a look. Look at, the, look at the table, if you will, at the bottom of page four on the top of page five. And then it says, Look at the parallels in Egypt. There it says, They do something with the water, and then it says, Egypt, They cannot drink from the, um, from the river. So in the plague of Dam, you couldn't drink from the river. In Mara, they also couldn't drink from the river. But the plague of Dam is the plague of blood is turning uh, drinkable water into non-drinkable. And here, what's God doing? He's turning non-drinkable water to drinkable water. In other words, here we have an interesting uh, parallel where a reverse parallel. Notice in the story of plagues, in the story of, sorry, in the story of frogs, Moshe Hashem. God cried out, Moshe cried out to God. Here again, and maybe the nicest parallel is this. In Shemot, here we have the man, I will rain bread from heaven. Okay. Same thing with the barad, the hail. Right? In both cases, we mention the sadeh, the field. Field. In the case of man, lotim suba sadeh, alitzeishmim komo biyomashvi. Here, kol asher basadeh, kol adam amrashi matzeh basadeh, v'lo yasef habaita. In both cases, we have a sense of gathering and a sense of raining. In one case, it's raining hail. In the other case, it's raining bread. And in both cases, the sense is, ba'avor teida, you will know that I am God. What's, what will we say the, the uh, 
What really is, is happening here? In this third approach, um, I'd like to suggest this. There seems to be an intentional reversal of the plagues. Instead of hitting the water, you take a, a piece of wood and hit the water and it becomes sweet. So let me maybe try and put it this way. If in our first approach, I was claiming that we, the aim of this process from the sea to Sinai, the aim of the process is to develop a dependency with God. My second approach was to say that we're trying to build a nation. Now I'm gonna say something which is maybe theologically daring. The people in Egypt, the Israelites, what did they really know of God? What did they know? This God had come to them and said, I'm going to redeem you. But what had they seen? They'd seen power, more than power. They'd seen destruction. God destroys, if you remember our, our, our shiur about the 10 plagues some years ago, we contrasted the destruction of creation. God is de decreating. He's destroying the world. Is that the God we want to believe in? Is that the God we want to lead us out of Egypt? He's a pretty scary God. In other words, you can believe in a God, but then the question is, what sort of God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who is uh, merciful and El Rachum Mechanun? Or is he a God who is, uh, I don't know, who is vengeful? And what might argue that until this uh, uh, moment, what they've actually seen is a God who destroys and kills. The last encounter with him would be Makat Bekorot. Now, if you want, God is showing his other side. He's showing his gentle side. He's showing his motherly side. He's showing that he was willing to provide. He is willing to lead. He is willing to guide us out of Egypt and actually, and therefore we find that a lot of these stories are using the language of the Makot to sort of provide a tikkun. A tikkun for what? I know this sounds radical, but a tikkun for God. <laughs> God has to show himself that his role of destruction and power in Egypt was only one side of his personality, but here is a different side. And therefore this wasn't to heal the Jewish people, this is actually to heal God, so to speak. Um, so these are our three approaches. Now I'd like to just point out that through this process, let's, let's maybe go back, sorry, I'm gonna go back to write the first line of the, of the whole source sheet. Here we go. At Kriyat Yamsuf, the people were paralyzed. At crossing the Red Sea, the people didn't know what to do. They, they, they panicked and they screamed to Moshe and God had to do an overt miracle. And then they go through this process of water, food and water. And what I'm claiming is this builds, number one, the nation. It builds a different side of God that they understand God will help them. God isn't only going to pummel and destroy. And it builds a relationship of dependency. Look what a radical difference there is between the war of Amalek and the crossing of the Red Sea. Once again, they get attacked. They get attacked in a surprised manner. They didn't expect the Egyptian army to come and they didn't expect Amalek to come. Now it's true that you can argue along with Ibn Ezra that um, these are not their masters and they could fight Amalek. But I would argue that in the interim, in these several weeks where they've been building through this water, food and water, Am Israel have built themselves. They've A, built a reliance on one another. They have B, they have built a reliance on God. 
and they've realized that God is somebody that if you turn to God, and we all remember the scene with the War of Amalek, where Moshe holds up his hands and directs their hearts to God, they um, are willing to, to, to put their faith in God and win the war. So indeed, as we are going to celebrate on the night of Pesach in uh, a short time from now, two weeks from now, we're going to celebrate that we became free. Um, but as my teacher of Yol Binun has expressed, the food of, 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 um, of Pesach is matzah. It's still flat. <laughs> the bread hasn't risen. The process is still at its inception. We still are a flat people, a people who haven't risen. We're still at the beginning of our journey. And what I've tried to describe here um, is actually a process which begins the very day after the Exodus. In fact, it takes us through already. Um, if you want, Pesach is the first week till Kriyat Yamsuf. And then we go out. We start counting the Omer as we intend to count up. We are, we are growing. We are developing. We are transforming ourselves. We are transforming our relationship with God. And this just shows us that we can't see redemption. We can't see freedom. We can't see in a contemporary context independence as something which happens in a single moment. And then we're done. That in fact, there is a long process, a long process, as we would say, ben adam on a horizontal sense within the nation, and a lot more to build also in a sense of our relationship with God. So thank you very much. I don't know if there are any questions. Feel free to, um, to unmute yourselves and uh, to, you know, to ask or to, if somebody's got a comment, short comment. Um, you're really welcome to, to add your voice. I have a short comment. Can you hear me? Yes, please. Just in terms of Rabbi Maidan's idea that the Chokumishba was about sharing the, uh, the water. Interesting idea. Actually, the, all the, the, the sources that you cited all have the word Chok. They didn't have the word Mishpat. But actually, I think there's a, a better source which would support him, which is the story in the book of Shmuel when David goes back to... Uh, after he's pushed him, send him back home, he goes to Tzikrog and he sees that everybody's been captured. They go to war and 200 of his men stay behind at 400 fight. And when they win the war, the 200, the 400 don't want to share with the 200. And the evidence says you have to share. And the key word is Yachdav Yachloku. The word Yachloku appears three times. You share equally, the word, those who stay back. And the next verse in chapter 30 is, Vahime Ayoma Hu Vamala, which picks up both the idea of a law, but also the sharing. And it's actually exactly sharing. It's about Yachoku equal sharing. And then you have Choku Mishpat also. Should be a good support for what you had suggested. Fabulous. Really fabulous. Right. And that's a wonderful example because there, these people are claiming we did all the work, right? You just exactly. sat and guarded. And he's basically saying it needs to be equal because we're all part of an army, the home front and the attack forces and we have to become we have to share equally he also uh, says because because god gave us the victory they say it's david's that means it's god since it's god we all share equally in what god has provided so it's a, actually a good support for what you had suggested thank you for that rabbi israel yeah um, back to the uh, first um the first uh, analysis uh, when we were talking about that amazing midrash from midrash rabbi that said that essentially moses had to drag them away uh, from from the Yamsa, from gathering the, the jewels. Um, do you see a parallel here um, with Lot? 
and uh, when before he, when uh, uh, the angels came to to rescue him uh, out of Sodom, and we remember from chapter thirteen, way back before Lot went to Sodom, he's standing with Abraham and his shepherds, and they're arguing, and they can't make peace. And he looks down, and he sees um, uh, Sodom, and he compares it to Gan Eden and Eretz Mitzrayim. Right. So we have Lot so reluctant to leave Sodom that it says actually in what chapter 18 19 that that um that the angels who were who were put there to destroy Sodom the parallel to destroying Mitzrayim at the Yamsuf um had to literally drag drag a lot they actually grabbed the Midrash says they grabbed him and his wife and two daughters and dragged them bodily um out of Sodom and I'm wondering remember when we we uh, you, were, you said, you know, we're not so nuts about this midrash that they were gathering the jewels, but that it's a metaphor. Metaphor and also uh, physically, uh, it seems to be the problem. You get too comfortable or you see something and want it so badly that you're paralyzed. You could be paralyzed from fear, but I think that maybe it's deliberate. Right. That, I, I, that midrash I mean, I, uh, has a really way. Really fabulous. Well, I don't think I emphasized enough, of course. I did mention it, but. I think the, the Midrash is also creating a parallel to the Mun, a reverse parallel to the Mun. But I, I totally love what you're saying. It's fabulous, really interesting. And uh, you're probably aware, uh, I imagine, there's a, a lovely Rashi, where Rashi on that chapter of, of, of Lot wants to claim, because he made his guess Matzot, and he says, it was Pesach. Pesach, <laughs> was Pesach. he says Pesach. Pesach. So there's really a parallel, but particularly with dragging them bodily away. Right. Midrash Rabbah is very aware of these intertextual connections, and Midrash Rabbah is reminding us. Right, saying, and, and, and remember, Lot thinks he's going out to a wasteland. There's no one yeah. there, and they're also going out to a wasteland. That's right. That's How right. are we going to survive? Who? So maybe there's a, you, I think you might be really onto something there. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great, great lecture. Thank you so much. Thank you for a fantastic lecture. I think we all learned a lot and it opened our eyes to a whole new way of looking at the Mitzrayim. So thank you. We've, we've got some good stuff for the Seder then. <laughs> thank you so much. And Be'ezrat Hashem, we will be able to meet in person in the not too distant future. You'll be able to come to Israel. I'll be able to come over there. And uh, we should all be able to meet our loved ones and to have a Seder together with uh, our families, Be'ezrat Hashem this year. And uh, we should all have a Chag Kasher B'Sameach. Thank you very much. Same to you. God. Thank you. Rabbi thank Silver, you. thank you. Okay. Thank you both. Thank Rabbis. you, Rabbi. Okay. Okay, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Israel and the Rappaport family. Thank you to everyone who joined us today here on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and also on Facebook. Uh, we have many more classes happening right now as well, so I hope to see you in one of our upcoming classes. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. Uh, you can also watch live and, and watch recordings uh, of this uh, class today and other classes on www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, uh, Rabbi Israel and the Rafa family. And I hope to see everyone again soon.